the alarm that you heard, it's, uh, it's called the Tseva Adon, which is the title of the piece that means color red. And that's code red in Israel, that means a rocket is coming. And you have to get to a bomb shelter. Uh, um, and also during uh, Holocaust Memorial Day in Israel, they also play this alarm. And on that day, everybody in Israel is, uh, stands still. And even if you're on the freeway or wherever you may be, everybody stands still. And it's very chilling. Everybody just stand, stands there for a minute. And then to hear this alarm again when we're under fire, Welcome back to Cadence, the podcast where we explore what music can tell us about the mind. I'm Indre Viscontis. We've been exploring this season how music can be used as medicine, and one way in which music is used almost universally across cultures is during rituals or ceremonies in which we seek to comfort ourselves or others. I wanted to learn a bit more about how music was used in extreme situations, times when human suffering was at its peak and when comfort was really important. These times inevitably involve some kind of conflict, and I wondered if music can not only comfort but also play a role in conflict resolution. After all, one of the things that we can measure in the brain is the level of oxytocin, often called the love hormone because of its role in social bonding. As it turns out, when we play or listen to music that moves us, we have higher levels of oxytocin in our brains. That might be why music is so good at bringing people together. But oxytocin is not just about love. It's also, in some ways, about hate. Because higher levels of oxytocin can also lead us to feel more aggressively towards people that we consider our enemies, the outgroup. And music can serve both to connect people and to alienate them. So in this episode, we're going to hear from Jewish music scholar Francesco Spagnolo, who will tell us a bit about music during one of the darkest times in human history, the Holocaust. We'll also hear from Be'eri Moalem, a composer whose time in Israel greatly influences his work. Finally, we'll talk to Micah Hendler, who uses music to break down the boundaries between Israeli and Palestinian youths in Jerusalem. Much of this episode was taped in February as part of my faculty artist recital at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. So it's a bit different from our other episodes and includes music performed live at the event. We started the concert with a piece by Osvaldo Golihoff, an Argentinian composer whose music I adore. The piece is written for soprano and string quartet, and I was joined by the Kinneret Quartet, with Daniel Scher and Claudia Bloom on violin, Be'eri Moalem on viola, and Thomas Schubotham on cello. The piece is in Gallego, and it's set to poetry by Rosalia de Castro. In the composer's own words, the musical setting is a constellation of clearly defined symbols that affirm contradictory things at the same time, becoming in the end a suspended question mark. Which I felt was especially appropriate given the context of what we were about to discuss. In the poem, a woman describes her deep sadness and asks the pale moon to take her to death's dark mansion. But then she adds a caveat, that she wants to be obliterated so that she is not remembered, neither here nor in the heavens above. Now that 
is true despair. If you prefer to skip it, it's about five minutes long. Here's Lua Descolorida by Osvaldo Golihoff, performed by me and the Kinneret Quartet.
So to get a deeper understanding of how music was used in different ways during the Holocaust, I sat down with Jewish music scholar and Berkeley professor Francesco Spagnolo. In terms of uh, what the impact of the Holocaust uh, broadly defined is on what we call Jewish music, uh, what we're talking about is a series of disappearances and dislocations of communities, of places of performance, of musical instruments and musical books, and also we have to think about a global impact of this event. When I say communities, I mean communities and individuals, both composers, performers, culture bearers, and audiences that were wiped out. So we have to think about sort of like a musical world that in the span of, we'll talk later about how many years, kind of vanishes, disappears. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about places of performances like synagogues and theaters, cafes, streets, and also private homes that were really cradles of a lot of musical culture that are also equally wiped out over the years, year after year, month after month, week after week, on, on a daily basis, right, over the course of, of the Holocaust. This had a global impact. We tend to think about the Holocaust and Central and Eastern Europe, but actually we have to think about Eastern West Europe, but also Southern Europe, Italy, Greece, are, are equally impacted and greatly, and of course, North Africa and the Middle East. So it's, it's really a global reach that, we, that this type of history has. And in terms of musical repertoires, we have to think about synagogue repertoires, equally global, Ashkenazi, Sephardic, Yiddish song, Judeo-Spanish song, Judeo-Arabic song, Judeo-Greek, Judeo-Italian, and so on. It, a lot of traditional repertoires that are destroyed with the communities themselves. We're sort of doing field work in a past that was 
erased. So we have to rely on fragments to reconstruct history. Now, before we get to the effects of the Holocaust, I know that there is some controversy with respect to when it actually began. So from the perspective of music, when do we think music was first affected? I think in a way the Holocaust, musically speaking, begins with the anti-Jewish laws that very soon after the Nazi party took over in Germany, so in April of 1933, were passed, and that actively retired, essentially dismissed all kinds of public servants. Among them were throngs of musicians who were working in state orchestras, opera theaters, and who were employed by, by the state. And uh, so this was a law that targeted specifically Jews and, or as, as it said, non-Aryans and, and uh, political opponents. So if anybody who was a musician was classified in those ways, they were let go. They were, mm-hmm. they had to take an early retirement and they ended up without work. And there was a, a huge gap in German history musical history due to this. And we know many stories around the Berlin Philharmonic and, and, and other, but it, it countless, countless orchestras and so on. And so we see this, uh, this paradigm expanding from Germany across Europe of letting go of Jewish musicians. And, and in a way, one can say that in art music, so we're not talking about just Jewish music, we're talking about a loss like think about, you know, if a segment of uh, the music population of the America, of North America were, was wiped out in, within a few days, what would happen to, uh, to, to our lives, right? So art music, in a way, is the first, uh, chronologically speaking, the first casualty, the first victim of, of the Holocaust. But of course, once the labor camps and ghettos were established, music was used there as well. There is the whole phenomenon of the tension in concentration camps and ghettos and labor camps where life was extremely hard but allowed for, or sometimes like in the case of of Theresienstadt, in which musical creativity was fostered for very specific and twisted designs on the part of the Nazi authorities, like in Theresienstadt, essentially to to show a model ghetto uh, where music and culture and cabaret were performed, and there were strategies of resistance there in terms of uh, carrying out a message in spite of very obsessive and pervasive uh, control. You know, we have different ghettos and different case studies for each one of them. So in, in Theresien, we have... Uh, mostly composers from Prague who mm-hmm. happened to be Jewish and were confined within this, you know, nearby. Uh, it was a fortress that became a, a concentration camp. And there was musical life that was fostered by the authorities, so they got to uh, perform their work. Uh, there are some of these works that are be- have become since uh, after World War II part of the global musical repertoires like the opera Brundibar. So we're talking about Hans Krasha, Viktor Ullmann, uh, composers uh, uh, who, who were established before the war and who, uh, before being murdered, were able to, to uh, have their work performed in these sort of twisted kind of contexts. But we have other uh, examples. For, for example, in, in Krakow, we have uh, the work of Mordechai, or Mordechai Gebertik, who was a, a kind of a Yiddish minstrel. Uh, who sang pretty much in the street and uh, and performed his his work and was murdered and was shot in the street by by an SS. Uh, similar kind of work and actually very important to us was in the letter, in the ghetto of Woj, Lodz. Uh, this is important because there was there were many layers of musical creativity there and they've been researched researched by an Israeli 
musicologist who herself, the daughter of Lodgetto survivors, who interviewed the network of survivors around the world. So basically she traveled the world to interview survivors about what they remembered of their music, musical repertoires. Mm -hmm. And also one of the musicians survived and moved to Italy uh, for some time after World War II, and there she spent some years reconstructing, Miriam Harrell, mm -hmm. uh, reconstructing her memory of what she had composed and could not write down. And then there's music in the most extreme of circumstances, in the death camps. So extermination camps were established beginning in 1941. We're talking about five locations with very, each one of them very different from the other. Uh, there were veritable killing factories where uh, people were just shipped to and murdered on the spot within a few minutes or hours and where there was no musical life. There was, there was no life, essentially. Or places that were wider, more organized, like Birkenau, where there were different, there were orchestras, there were all kinds of uh, 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 musical activities, both to, um, you know, what, what's the most famous is music to accompany the march of inmates in and out of camps for labor, but also to entertain uh, the, the, the SS who were, who were ruling over, over the camp. And uh, so there, there, there too, there are very important differences, and it's good to be discriminating about them. Just a couple of uh, somewhat personal experiences, having grown up, uh, uh, you know, with survivors and, and knowing still many of them, but very two very different uh, memories that I collected, both from Birkenau. One, um, a very dear friend who lives in, in New York City now, uh, who was telling me about how in the in the women's uh, block that she was in, there were singers at night after a full day of of hard labor who would sing, and she and she said to me, you know, we we meaning she and her uh, inner very small group of 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 connections within the block said we hated those evening singers because they reminded us of the times that were when we were free, and so listening to that music was really painful. Mm -hmm. uh, even though the music itself was sung, like the songs are sung to be liberating, and you know, after a hard day, etc. But the experience was 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 the opposite. The other is a very moving testimony by a French uh, survivor, Fred Sedel, who s witnessed the evacuation of the Roma camp. So the um, the all the adults. It, this this was in April 1944. Uh, all the adults were were shipped off and and to the guest chambers, and the children were left behind, and not just the parents, but the elders, as they were trucked away, uh, sang to the children. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that case, the the use of a voice That's as a way to kind of share mm -hmm. a, a last minute comfort mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. with. Uh, harmless children knowing very well what, what awaited them. So we, we, we find all kinds of cases and all kinds of permutations, and it's really hard to establish any rule. It would be nice to, to know that music can save and can make people feel good, but it's not always like yeah, that, right? Yeah, yeah. So in a way, the memory, the musical memory of the Holocaust begins with the Holocaust and shortly after that. And, it, and then it's followed by actually uh, something that sound-wise it's as important as music, which is silence. For decades, most survivors kept silent for one reason or another, because of personal shame, because of uh, the fact that nobody wanted to hear their stories for different reasons, uh, either because if they were in Europe, countries were 
being rebuilt. If they were in Palestine, the state of Israel was about to be established. There were wars to be fought, and they were also representing the memory of, of victims rather than of uh, winners, and, and, and the state of Israel needed strong winners to establish itself. Um, or simply they were swamped by the, by the noise of victory uh, of World War II. So uh, survivors kept silent. So we have a long period of silence, a period of silence, which is equally important in sonic terms, if not specifically in musical ones. And, and then that's followed, I would say maybe 1970s, even more important 1980s, but what has been called by a French historian, the era of the witness. Uh, all of a sudden, Testimonies became crucial. Uh, there is something to be said about that. Can history only be written through the words of, uh, of uh, first-hand witnesses or not? And uh, so through that, we have a lot more information. And we have a way to reconstruct what the past might have been like. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, we're opening up the door, as I was saying earlier, to a plethora of political uses of memory and of music as part of memory. Given the depth of this conversation and the emotions therein, it was time to take a musical break. I asked Barry Moalem and the Kinneret Quartet to return to the stage to perform two pieces that he had written. So let's talk about the first piece. Um, we talked with Francesco about the dislocation and the, the, the loss, um, not only of people, which of course is more important, but also of music. And in this first piece, you bring back some music that we thought was lost. Um, so tell us a little bit about the um, Hasidic sect and, and what was known about what happened. So the Breslev Hasidim, there were a lot of them uh, before the war. I think after the war, only a handful survived, like 70 or something, and almost all forgotten. And then through the power of the teachings and, uh, and their songs, and I don't know how, but... It, their their philosophy has made a resurgence, and uh, their the, the this specific specific sect of Hasidim is they're all about music, and and joy and finding the good in people, and I mean one of the teachings is like always have a melody to carry along with you to like to just a hum to yourself or. And uh, we know that the Rebbe, the, the, the guy who originated, Rabbi Nachman, um, he has some teachings about people as music notes, because he has a, a thing that where every, you find, find the good dot in everybody, nekudat tova in Hebrew, the good point. And then he makes an analogy of like, when you find a music, in she music, when you have dots on the page, and how kind of piecing those dots together makes a melody. So likewise, when you find the good in the people, and you can make like a melody, a community. And so just an example of some of the things that were lost in there. And I visited in Ukraine the pilgrimage site of his grave. And uh, it's, it's now every Rosh Hashanah, the, the Jewish New Year, there's thousands of people that go there. Like, 30,000, they say. And they take over this town and they overwhelm all of the infrastructure and it's a big chaos. Uh, but there I heard about this melody that was found in Ukraine and that they 
they say that it was by the rabbi himself. So if he was familiar with the sheet music, maybe uh, he did compose it. Uh, no way of knowing for sure. I saw like a picture of the score and, and it has an inscription on the score. They said, this is the melody that accompanies the tzaddikim, which means righteous, accompanies them as they walk into heaven. And I've also heard uh, another story of the, the Breslov Hasidim that the, as everything was going to hell in Poland and Ukraine and all over, that they, were, they actually kept their, their philosophy of like always singing and, and, uh, and being happy. Even, uh, I mean, I don't know how long, and, and I don't know the first-hand account of this story, but I can kind of imagine it, because the whole philosophy of the Breslev Hasidim is even in the, your darkest hour, that's like God sent that to you for a reason. And so anyway, I took this uh, melody that they say that they found recently, and um, I set it for string quartet. So that was the first slow melody. And I don't know if you noticed that in some parts of that composition, there are parts where we kind of break off into our own things and it's not really together anymore. And if you ever go to Hasidic uh, synagogues, it's like they all have their own thing. They're all just singing different keys, different songs. Like they're saying the same text and they're meaning the same thing, but they all do their own thing. It's very kind of chaotic, but organized chaos. And so that I, was try I tried to put some of that into the music also.
That brings us to the second piece, which uh, you've told me is is about 
um, some ways in which you were processing an experience that was difficult for you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the inspiration for the piece, the alarm. So the alarm that you heard, it's, uh, it's called the Tseva Adon, which is the title of the piece, that means color red. And that's code red in Israel, that means a rocket is coming and you have to get to a bomb shelter. Uh, um, and also during uh, Holocaust Memorial Day in Israel, they also play this alarm. And on that day, everybody in Israel is, uh, stands still. And even if you're on the freeway or wherever you may be, everybody stands still. And it's very chilling. Everybody just stand, stands there for a minute. And then to hear this alarm again when we're under fire. So I, for to people in Israel, I think it means, like, it's obviously it's not the Holocaust, but it's, it's the same story that they're trying to kill us again. You know, even different actors and, you know, different political realities. But, but uh, the fact is they're still, ro you know, launching rockets at civilian areas and you feel like you're under attack and they want to kill you. And so it's very um, chilling. And, the, and the, the alarm, whenever Israelis hear it, when I play this song for them, it's on OCD, and when, it, when, when that comes on, everybody's like, oh my, like, do we have to get to a bomb shelter? And you know, everyone knows that alarms can be triggering, even in their rear view mirror, so. What made you, or, or, or what, what gave you the impetus to put it to music? If this is a sound that, in some ways, you don't want to hear, what, what made you put it to music? Um, well, as a way to, to process it, I mean, I do music all day long, from the, from the moment I get up, practice piano, practice violin, viola, and teaching it all day. So it's, I, it's natural for me to, everything that goes, I, I relate it to music. Um, but it's, it's a good way to process it. And for a while, I, I think I wrote that in the program that I, I would hear a motorcycle revving, I would think it's alarm. And so it helped me work through some of that. And you know, some, sometimes in PTSD, they kind of want to relieve their experience as a way to maybe move through it or past it. And so it, it did help me um, come to terms with it. Do you, when you play that piece now, do you feel any of that panic? Or do you feel more that you have gained control over something that was out of your control? Well, it's, it's been a while. I don't feel as much as I used to. Um, but I, you know, it's, it's still a little bit, but it, also the passage of time helps with that. I mean, obviously, my, my experience was nothing, literally, <laughs> compared to the Holocaust, because you know, no, nobody I know was even injured. There were people who died, but... Um, so it's, it's, I wouldn't call, say that I have PTSD, PTSD from it, or even trauma, but there's like a kind of something below trauma, but like in between. And so, yeah, and when I'm playing, I, I try not to f get too worked up. <laughs> That's kind of why we're talking about it after, because I didn't want to, after talking about all my emotional process, to have to control my body. And so. Yeah, it's interesting. As, as listeners, sometimes we listen to music in order to gain, uh, you know, work through emotions that are difficult because we know we can always turn it off. As performers, 
you can't turn it off in the middle of a piece if you become overwhelmed by it. And that's something that we have to learn to, um, in rehearsal, work through so that we know that by the time we get on stage, um, you know, we know what to do. We don't, we know we don't talk about it before. <laughs> you know, we know the things that we need to do in order to make sure that we can get through the piece um, without succumbing to that emotional ride. Um, but I think actually that's one of the great powers of music is the ability to be able to um, work through an emotional uh, journey in, in a way that um, isn't re-traumatizing. So thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you. Then I wanted to know what Francesco had learned about how music is used in extreme circumstances, not necessarily during the Holocaust. Very famously, Theodor Adorno, uh, who was also a pretty interesting music critic and music theorist, uh, said that uh, writing poetry after Auschwitz is a barbaric act. It's a, it's a, it's a quote that's always misquoted and, and confused, etc. He didn't say that. Some, some people interpret this as it's impossible to make art after the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. it, he's just saying art has to come to term with barbarianism, mm -hmm. uh, with the fact that humankind is, can, can do such horrible things as we know it can do. And uh, one way to deal with that is to uh, retreat and uh, sort of conserve and, 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 and reduce all the means of expression in the case of music to the point of taking sound out and letting silence uh, speak. Mm -hmm. uh, so we find silent characters in operas, we find actual silence in instrumental music, we find a lot of ways in which silence can be represented as the center of the focus of the sonic attention. It's a very delicate and complex um, um, uh, sort of device, mm -hmm. compositional device. Uh, the last uh, aspect that I think I, I, I like to talk about and in a way uh, the, the piece and the, the, the musical siren we, uh, we heard uh, earlier speaks to that also is the use of fragments. Um, as I introduced this topic earlier I was saying uh, we're dealing with a history that was willingly eliminated by the perpetrators. We know this well. We know that the perpetrators of the Holocaust spent considerable amount of energy trying to hide their tracks. And, and that's one of the reasons why there are so many debates about it and why, uh, you know, negationist historians seem to have a way of, of fostering their, their ideas because uh, we're actually writing a history that was deleted, that was eliminated by those who made it. Um, and so fragments are the matter in which we deal with to reconstruct this history, but seemingly it's also the way in which artists also operate to come to terms with trauma. Um, I don't need to tell you, since you're working on, 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 on neuroscience and, and cognition, and uh, that memory and fragments are very closely connected. Uh, but it seems like it's a, it's a, it's musically speaking, it's a generative compositional uh, technique to use fragments to uh, evoke something that cannot be fully described in sounds and words, and uh, for which the documentary fails.
So the use of music during the Holocaust is layered and complex, not always simply to provide comfort or even to heal trauma. But can music now serve to help people who have been fractured by politics and who, generations later, have still been affected by the Holocaust? Can it help them now come together? If so, how does that work on a practical level? Enter Micah Hendler, who combined his passions for music and international studies to create the YMCA Jerusalem Youth Chorus, bringing together young Palestinians and Israelis to work on conflict resolution and to plant seeds of peace. I run a chorus for Israeli and Palestinian high school students that also has a dialogue program built into it. And the way that I sort of stumbled upon that as something that might work was because I'm a singer and a musician, and that's always been an important part of who I am. And it's always been the way that I found community. And I didn't obviously intellectualize it that way growing up until I did, but but I saw that eventually that I could even start communities by starting music groups and that that was a very powerful thing, that I could create a sense of shared identity. And then um, when I was at Seeds of Peace, which was the dialogue uh, experience that I had when I was in high school, I saw that music was actually used in the same way to create a sense of community and shared identity in the context of which you can have a more effective dialogue. Because if you're only doing the hardcore dialogue and you're only sort of arguing about policy, then yeah, you're not going to get very far, probably, because people will get very defensive and oppositional and re-entrench themselves. But if everyone feels like they're all part of the same thing, some sort of transcendent identity that is not just, okay, we're all whatever it is, in this case of seeds of peace, we're all seeds, you know, but that there is a sense of expectation and value and an emotional weight that comes with that new identity, which is reinforced by music, the sense that like we're all in something together in the sense that, you know, why do countries have national anthems or why do different soccer teams have their like team songs or whatever. Like it's because it reinforces a sense that we're all in something together. And when you have that as an element of a community building process, it's more difficult to simply shut out somebody else because you also are them in some way. They're not just the other because you have something shared. And so in that sense, music and specifically in my case, I would say singing with other people because it's the most accessible form of music making is a way of creating parameters that help dialogue to be more successful. I'm really curious about how the music making is affected by all this. You know, I've been in choirs. Um, I'm a soprano mm -hmm. and uh, I have a big voice. All right. And uh, when I'm told to blend in, you know, it can be a little annoying. Okay. Uh, and when I have the person next to me who's like trying to compete with me with like, you know, not doesn't have as big a voice, but is trying to match my big, you know, it's annoying. Yes. Uh, so, you know, there soprano are these, struggles. Uh, soprano struggles, right? Um, so I can imagine that if the person next to me was also an outgroup person, mm -hmm. um, that those struggles would be intensified. Um, mm -hmm. Do you, I mean, I'm, you know, joking, but not but really. But also not uh, at all. Like. So, you know, do you see those kinds of struggles played out from purely the musical standpoint? And how do you deal with them as a conductor? Um, yes, because we're dealing with a group of people and particularly a group of teenagers. But then everything, of course, has a political overtone, um, always. So I've been, 
I've been accused of being racist by people like chorus members on both sides, basically for like not giving them the solo they wanted or giving, you know, another section more time or saying that it's okay for this person to miss rehearsal, but not this person or whatever it is. It's always like, well, oh, it's because they're X. Um, So that just makes everything harder, but it also is part of the nature of what we're doing that like that's part of the the water that everybody drinks is this sort of victim mentality and so you have to deal with it so one of the things that does happen uh that we can measure uh, scientifically in terms of when people sing together in a chorus um they start to entrain certain parts of their physiology so for example their heartbeats begin to go into sync mm-hmm. uh their breathing rates begin to go into sync and um if you've been in I don't know if you've been in therapy I have yeah. and um one thing you'll notice is a good therapist will mirror your body language mm-hmm. and that makes you feel as if you are being heard and that you're you know you're you're sharing this empathy and it's like you know it's a it's like a stupid physical trick that works, right? Yeah, exactly. So in a sense, uh, that's in part what can happen in a choir. Where, Definitely. You know, because you're in training these physiological processes, you can develop more empathy for the person standing next to you because you're breathing together. Oh, exactly. You know, and you have also like the oxytocin release and like that, of course, is one of my sort of favorite. I'm not a music cognition person in the way that you are, but Um, That's one of my favorite fun facts about singing in groups is that it actually makes you trust the people that you're singing with more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So oxytocin is, is, uh, you know, a a neurotransmitter hormone that like helps us form bonds with each other. And so, you know, it's, it's in higher levels and in between two individuals who are bonding. Um, So, and it is true that in, in, when you sing in choirs, you see those levels rise. So um, is that the reason that you chose music as your, you know, medium for conflict resolution, or are there other reasons that you have observed that makes music particularly effective in terms of bringing people across these boundaries um, that d- doesn't rely simply on that kind of physiological behavior matching? Well, I I chose music as a way of doing this, not even necessarily because I looked at all the available choices and decided that music would be the best. It's just because I've been singing my whole life and I saw that it could be powerful in this way and I pursued that and now I've ended up where I am. Um, It more sort of chose me as someone who wanted to sing and um, then sort of what that meant. I think that there's a lot though that goes beyond sort of the physiological, the physiological supports a lot of the emotional processes that are going on. But you can also be in choirs where the conductor is super task mastery and everyone is really competitive and it feels horrible. Like I've been in choirs like that too. Um, and what's what's really important about ours is the way that we structure it as such a nurturing environment where everyone is encouraged to sing solos, even if they aren't as good as other people or aren't as confident, um, where everyone um, is encouraged to try new things, to be present, where we try to sing music of everyone's different backgrounds so everyone feels like they have a stake musically and culturally in what we're doing in the group. We translate everything into three languages in rehearsal because there isn't sort of one common language that everybody speaks. So we want everyone to understand. So we do all these things to create uh, the conditions in which people can be their best selves. I think shared vulnerability is key. The idea that you have the trust to 
be vulnerable and know that the people around you are not going to take advantage of you is really something that is completely opposite of all the impulses of of most people who live in Jerusalem. Living in Jerusalem and specifically the conflict more or less has taught most people that if you're vulnerable, someone will take advantage of you. Um, and so the idea that we've created a space where that is not the case is, I think, the beginning of creating then different responses. Why is the facilitated discussion part important? What do you, what do you see as, as why is that a critical piece of what you're doing? I think for, for me, the even saying this as a musician and as like the choral director, the dialogue is the most important part of what we do. That the music is a tool that creates community and also provides a common goal and is the reason why people show up. But the actual really transformative work happens in dialogue in terms of how people view the world because that's the point of dialogue. And I think that's critical. That research um, sort of is backed up by the social psychology literature on intergroup encounters where if you don't have the intergroup level, then you're not going to get a change on the intergroup level you won't have actually any reduction in prejudice or change in attitude or stereotype or whatever about the other side if you don't actually engage with the people you're meeting as representative of the other side. And if you're only engaging on the interpersonal level, which is it doesn't matter where you come from, it doesn't matter where I come from, we're all people, then you're not going to understand anything about where that person comes from. And therefore, you're not going to understand the world from their perspective anymore. And you end up with a phenomenon called subtyping where basically you say, oh, this person is my friend, but their uncle could still be a terrorist. And you don't understand why that's like a problematic way of thinking. That's the sort of like, I have a black friend, therefore I'm not racist, like level of understanding about the world. Um, and that's why we have dialogue. The most compelling moment of... My whole time working with the chorus um, happened in 2014. It was a summer where you had the war in Gaza and you had rockets falling on Jerusalem and you had violence being directed against teenagers on both sides in Jerusalem. And even some of the kids in the choir were like one or two or three degrees separated from teenagers who were killed. And it was the day after Mohammed Abu Khader was, was killed and we had a rehearsal scheduled. And it happened to be the first rehearsal for our first international tour, which was happening in about a month from then. And it was really important. And the previous week, I'd made a huge deal of how everyone had to be super committed and show up. But then we were debating, like, okay, do we have rehearsal or not? You know, in this kind of a situation, and half of East Jerusalem was under curfew, and it was a, it was a mess, and people were really scared to leave their houses. And we ultimately decided to have rehearsal as sort of a like we're open for business, but it's not mandatory, right? So anyone can come who feels comfortable and feels safe because we're still here and we still value this space, but you don't have to come. And about half of the kids actually came with about an equal representation actually of Palestinians and Israelis, which was kind of remarkable given like just the security logistics of getting to rehearsal. Um, but then about halfway through rehearsal, a girl uh, from a specific neighborhood in East Jerusalem called Shuafat uh, 
came. And Shuafat was where Muhammad Abu Khudair was from. It was a neighborhood that erupted in violence and was under complete lockdown. And then she had like come to rehearsal. And so I was kind of flabbergasted because I first I was like, A, thank God you're okay. B, how did you get here? Like physically, how did you arrive at rehearsal? And she said, look, I was in my house. I was like listening to all of the bullets and smelling the tear gas and everything was crazy. And I was just sitting in my house going nuts. And so I walked out of my house and I walked down the street and the soldiers tried to stop me, but I ran away and here I am. And this is exactly where I want to be. And so for me, that was so moving and the whole point, the idea that we had sort of flipped to a point where instead of violence making people want to stop coming, it made them want to come more because this was a place that mattered so much to them as like an oasis away from every, everyone else being insane. Well, I certainly hope that Micah's intervention takes off and goes global. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cadence. You can find us online at theensembleproject.com slash cadence, at Facebook slash Cadence Podcast, and on Twitter at Cadence Podcast. You can also get in touch with us at cadencemind at gmail.com. And you can support us at patreon.com slash Cadence Podcast. Cadence is produced by Adam Isaac and me, Indre Viscontis. I also created and write the show. The music in this episode was provided for us by acclaimed New Zealand composer Rian Sheehan and also Osvaldo Golihoff and Be'eri Mo'alem. You can find me on Twitter at Indrevis. Cadence is generously supported by the Germanicos Foundation. Join us in a few weeks for our next episode in which we continue our exploration into what music tells us about the mind. <laughs> <laughs>